You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I'm Jeff Nyquist, your host, and today we're going to be talking about the U.S. economy, the financial crisis that has begun. I I want to start, I got a, uh, an item from the March 14th uh, Wall Street Journal, New York. In a dramatic move Friday, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York stepped in with emergency funds to keep beleaguered investment bank Bear Stearns Company afloat. The move after a week of persistent concerns about whether Bear could continue to meet its obligations took the credit crisis to a new, more serious stage and was a reminder of how quickly an erosion of confidence can undermine even leading financial institutions. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the financial crisis is beginning to swallow up major institutions. My guest today is going to be Michael Pansner. He's the author of Financial Armageddon. We've had him on the show before, and we're going to analyze the stage at which we're at in the present crisis. And we'll be back with my guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. WIBG 1020, live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, they oh, one side kick, they loop it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. With me on the phone is my guest, Michael J. Pansner. He's a 25-year veteran of the global stock bond and currency markets. He's worked in New York and London for HSBC, Soros Fund, ABN AMRO, Dresdner Bank, and J.P. Morgan Chase. He is also a New York Institute of Finance faculty member and a graduate of Columbia University. He's the author of The New Laws of the Stock Market Jungle, An Insider's Guide to Successful Investing in a Changing World. And he's also uh, the author of Financial Armageddon. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. Now, your book came out uh, some months back, and uh, we've had you on the show twice, and we've talked about how your predictions in the book, the kind of things you talk about, have been unfolding. They continue to unfold right now. We've got bailouts of uh, hedge funds and major banks and investment firms right and left. Uh, how how are things progressing in your view right now? Well, I mean, not, not that you want to see it go according to a plan, but it does seem to be following the sort of cascade that you might expect in a, in a system that really was was very much like a house of cards. And, and I think we're seeing uh, evidence that each day seems to bring a kind of a new uh, unwanted and unwelcome uh, surprise in a different corner of the financial universe. This week it was... Bear Stearns, um, this mm -hmm. past week anyway, it was Bear Stearns, um, and uh, my guess is that next week it'll be something else. Yes, and of course we had the thing with Citigroup before, and we we had a, a major bank in England that there had to be an intervention in, on behalf of. That's correct, yeah, Northern Rock, essentially it was nationalized, taken over by the government. That's extraordinary. I mean, these are the kind of moves that we haven't seen in a long time by major players like the U.S. and Britain. 
Uh, well, I think, you know, the, the whole culture has been ostensibly, it's been uh, argued that it's a capitalist culture, but it seems like during the good times it's capitalist and during the bad times it's socialist. And what we have now is um, everyone on Wall Street who had begged the government to stay out of their way. Same had happened in London, another key financial center. Uh, once the tide turned, everyone looked to the government for a handout. I, I think it's pretty extraordinary. And, and unfortunately, the government uh, is being somewhat compliant on both sides of the Atlantic. Do you think that this bodes ill for a, for a rapid recovery from, from any bottom that, that happens in this, uh, this crash? Well, you know, it's hard to say that the government doing nothing would necessarily be absolutely the best course. But what happens in an environment like this is you don't know if things are at the right price. You don't know what the real problems are. You don't have this sense that um, things have reached um, bottom, which is what you get traditionally in, uh, you know, say in a stock market where things get to the point where they're just devastated, pounded out, but you don't have this outside interference kind of muddying the water. So in a way, I think it makes it worse because everyone assumes the only reason it's not much more disastrous than it is is because the Fed is involved heavily, the government is involved heavily, and and and, and, uh, and in a sense, they hold back. And I think it'd be much better, frankly, um, if they let market forces do their work, however painful that might be, because I think it would be shorter and it would lead to uh, a healthier outcome. Now, we have all these mechanisms in place to preserve people's wealth. For example, if a bank fails, they've got insurance that you're guaranteed to get up to $100,000 of your money back if you had it in that bank. Right. And we see bailouts going on. And uh, is this really going to stop anything? Or are, in the long run, are we causing other bad things to happen? Well, I think it's the, the, the latter. And in a sense, we've had two decades of this, some would argue. That's where perhaps the roots of this whole crisis uh, go back to. But we've had two decades of a, of a, uh, a kind of moral hazard environment. It's a common term in, uh, in economic circles. And the whole idea is that each time there's been a crisis, the, the, the crisis has been resolved by the Federal Reserve or the government or somebody has stepped in. But people have gotten this this perspective that if it goes wrong, somebody will bail them out. And so it encourages them to do riskier things. It encourages them to let things slip. It encourages them really to take their eye off the ball. And I think the problem now with the bailouts taking place now um, will only exacerbate that trend and leave everyone avoiding the, the real hardcore issues at hand, which is that we have a, uh, a dysfunctional financial system and we have an economy that really needs to be reorganized much more efficiently than it is. Interesting. Um, now, the Fed keeps lowering interest rates through this. Is that the right solution? And, and what's the logic in doing this? Well, there's many different arguments here. I mean, clearly, lower rates are going to provide some benefit, for example, to financial institutions because typically they borrow money at, uh, you know, at uh, short-term rates. And the idea is that if they can borrow it very cheaply from the Fed, that they can um, lend it out or they can use it to finance positions that earn more and they make the difference between what they're paying out in interest and what they're receiving in terms of, of interest. But in, in reality, it, it brings up the whole issue of, you know, why is the Fed there at all? Why, do, why are interest rates, as opposed to any other market price, being set by a government institution, which is already acknowledged in, in many respects that it doesn't really know what to do at this point? 
so you have this, you know, this this monster, and and I don't mean that literally like a scary monster, but you have this this creation, the Fed, which has essentially been interfering with markets for a long time, and is is still interfering, and perhaps creating all sorts of inefficiencies, dysfunctions, and uh, misallocation of resources. And I don't see how you can resolve the problems we have without getting that slate sort of wiped clean. Hmm. I remember reading and Ludwig von Mises talking about this kind of situation that we're in now where you have a contraction of credit in the money supply and whatnot, and you have a sort of a panic in the investment area. And the basic message I get from this, and perhaps you can correct me, is that nothing that anybody does is going to be able to stop this from playing out, that it that it has to go through and hit bottom for things to right themselves? Well, a number of economists, a uh, small number of economists, let's put it that way, have made the argument that you have this natural buildup of excesses in the kind of financial system that we have, and that ultimately those excesses get resolved in one way or another, whether it gets resolved through default, whether it gets resolved through uh, a period of extended uh, subpar growth, However it gets resolved, the excesses need to get cleansed away. The problem is that people got so used to two decades, and, and much of that was during the Greenspan era Fed, of two decades of government creating the illusion and giving the impression that the old cleansing of the excesses, the past recessions, the past downturns were all gone away, and in fact all they did was delay it, and arguably that delay is made uh, for the much more dramatic outcome we have right now. Hmm. Let's talk about the dollar for a second. It's it's rather alarming what's happening to the dollar. Uh, it's fallen. It, it fell below uh, seventy five euros to one dollar. It, it fell down to down to seventy two or seventy three. I'm not sure where where the low point was. Somewhere in there, that is a reversal of where the euro was when it started. Where the euro was, it was, was seventy five U S cents to one euro dollar, and now it's it's reversed. Um, and you've got these uh, oil countries that will not take dollars but want euros. Um, is this going to lead to something uh, significant here domestically in the U.S.? What's going to happen with that? Well, certainly I think it's part of a process and a whole shift in the world's view of the U.S. I mean, I, I think in many respects the, the dollar's long-time preeminence, you know, for decades – was was very much a reflection of the world's view of the U.S. as a country, and I think this this faltering dollar is is a, is a sign that um, you know in a in a broader sense that people have lost respect for the U.S., which is I think a much more dramatic aspect than than you know perhaps the, just the economic uh, elements. Um, but you know taken together, a, a dollar where people around the globe have lost confidence creates a lot of problems for the U.S. I mean, one of the reasons we've been able to sustain, uh, you know, these these very costly wars in the, in the Middle East and essentially this imperial overstretched military capability is because of the fact that we can uh, essentially uh, print our own currency and we've been able to borrow from a number of countries uh, essentially at uh, below market rates because we're treated as a triple A type credit. Well, once people lose faith in the dollar and with that faith in the U.S., um, then the whole ball game changes and we become uh, much more vulnerable um, economically than we've ever been before. And if people think we have problems now, you know, in terms of our deficits and in terms of the problems we have financially, uh, they've not seen anything yet if people lose faith, completely lose faith in the dollar. 
Yeah, I, I, I saw the statistics on, on gasoline prices. Uh, almost 30% uh, last year, the price of gasoline went up, and, and diesel went up something like 84%. And uh, if if you have these these things we have to import, that's energy, oil, to sustain our lifestyle, it seems logical to me at some point our lifestyle has to come to an end, that we cannot continue down this way because our ability to buy these energy sources overseas is going away. Well, I, you know, clearly that's the case um, when you have a depreciating currency, um, that's for sure. I mean, clearly oil, energy, uh, in a broader sense, is, is a big part of uh, the way we live. And some have argued it will be our downfall because we got so used to such a long period of time with relatively cheap oil, have an infrastructure built around it, have a food distribution system based on it. You know, the whole essence of the U.S. has been based on the idea of getting relatively cheap energy, and, and that seems to be changing. So it could be incredibly disruptive to the U.S. and, and really have a fairly serious impact on our standard of living. That's, that's a big concern. And, and you wrote in your book, um, Financial Armageddon, the people being impacted by this in the first stage being the, the people who are uh, living below the poverty level. Right. And then those next, those who are making as much as twice the poverty uh, level in income, working eight, nine dollar an hour jobs now are having trouble commuting because the cost is such a large percentage of their income now. You know, clearly people at the lower levels in terms of income spend more of their um, household earnings on food, more on rent, more on gasoline than people at the higher levels. So it has a you know a, a far more dramatic impact on those people uh, when you see the prices of those goods go up. You know it's not a it's not rocket science. And I think the way this is going is that it's going to spread further and further afield and affect people who make what some might argue are decent livings right now. And that is where I think it, it becomes even more traumatic for the country as a whole. Let's talk a minute about inflation versus deflation. We have sort of asset deflation with housing prices falling. We have uh, price inflation with food and gasoline and natural gas, he heating oil and whatnot. What is it that you see in the immediate future and the long run? Are we headed for a Great Depression-style deflation or a hyperinflation like they had in Germany in the 20s or a combination? What what do you th see this developing as? Well, let me just tell you, there's two camps. There's two schools of thought on this. I'm in one school. I'm of the belief, and I think history is on my side, that when you have a, a credit bubble bursting, when you have this tremendous buildup of leverage at every level of society, um, it inevitably forces people to sell things. It forces people to sell houses. It forces people to sell all kinds of assets. It forces people to spend less money because they have to repay those excessive debts they took on during the good times. So they start spending less uh, in terms of the economy. Companies cut back. They lay people off. People spend less. They sell things. So in arguably, uh, a bursting credit bubble is deflationary. Now, a number of people are focusing right now on what's been going on with the Fed, um, you know, attempting to salvage the financial system. They've been looking at the dollar. They've been looking at moves in gold and oil. Personally, I think those are last gas moves of the of the end of the the sort of leverage era. That's my opinion. But there are very smart people who take a different view who are looking for us to streamline right into a hyperinflationary environment. 
In my book, I laid it out as a two-phase process. I think we'll see a deflationary contraction. We'll see something very much like we saw during the Great Depression, but things will get to a point where essentially authorities throw in the towel and they literally print currency. Right now, they're, they're giving credit away, which has to be repaid. But they'll literally make the shift to, you know, Weimar or Zimbabwean style economics where they, where they actually literally print paper, print currency. And then I think we'll get hyperinflation. But I will tell you that there is differences of opinion. My view is that the inevitable fallout from people having too much debt is they tend to have to raise cash. They tend to have to sell things and it tends to depress prices of everything. That will put pressure on oil prices, however absurd that might seem under current circumstances. But, you know, in all fairness, there are people who differ with my view. With me is Michael Pansner. He is the author of Financial Armageddon. And we'll be back with the Jeff Nyquist Show after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. At 10.20 a.m. or WIBG.com, we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 10.20, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 10.20, we're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. All right, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and my guest is Michael Pansner. He's the author of Financial Armageddon, and we've been talking about what's going on with the U.S. economy, and it it sounds very serious. I mean, it really does look like we're we're in it. Everybody's talking about it now. It's it's not like anybody's out there denying it and saying everything's okay. But uh, is there something that they could do right now? to stop this, to stop the bottom from falling out and to save the economy, so to speak? Well, uh, you can never say never. However, one of the key aspects of this entire uh, unraveling that we're seeing now is the fact that many different asset prices got overinflated, most particularly uh, real estate prices. Um, And real estate prices are unlikely to stop falling until they go back to a level that represents some kind of reality, either tied to income levels, tied to rent levels, whatever benchmark you want to use. So as long as you have this tremendous stock of wealth in the U.S., which is represented by uh, you know real estate, uh, continuing to be under pressure, it's difficult for anybody to do anything to, to sort of stem the tide. Whether they can uh, take you know steps to sort of uh, make the downslide easier, possibly. Some um, analysts have argued that, uh, you know, one way ultimately that will resolve this problem will be for the government to step in and essentially nationalize the banking system and look at some point to sort of like they did, I guess, back in the sort of uh, late 80s um, during the period with the SNL crisis where they take the, the bad stuff on board and eventually try and peel it off and uh, and, and try to make the taxpayers whole. But in reality, I think it's a historic event, mm-hmm. and, it, and it represents decades of excesses that really produced extraordinary levels of, uh, of misallocation of resources. And we're talking about something, and I think people, because we talk about money and economics, they have a hard time relating to it. We're really talking about a psychological shift 
and a cultural shift because Americans and the way we spend money, the way we look at the, our future and the way we, we accumulate the, the debts that we do and we, we, we've been consuming on debt. This has been a fact that you look at the credit card debt numbers and, and you, you look at this and you say, Americans have adopted this this idea that the that the kind of prosperity we've experienced in recent decades is kind of permanent. It's something that we're going to always have and that life and economic uh, development is going to continue and life's going to get better and better. But but what this larger event signals is that okay, life isn't necessarily what we thought it was and having these extended positions and having this debt and investing in in these things that may not pan out is has been a mistake. So you have this tremendous psychological change that we are about to go through or we're going through now. Would that be fair to say that it really is a huge psychological shift? Sure. Like you, I guess maybe you could characterize it as a social wave of sorts. You know, you clearly you can see it. I mean, there's been articles in, in, in publications like USA Today, um, Christian Science Monitor, um, Associated Press. All of them are sort of cataloging or describing a kind of a shift in mood about spending. I mean, this whole age of consumerism changing, people thinking, well, you know what, I don't need to spend and buy these things that are, that are unnecessary to make myself feel better. Maybe there's other ways. And that's another reason why, by the way, I believe in the, in the sort of deflation cycle first, because deflation and inflation are as much mindsets as they are anything else. If people think things are going to be cheaper or if they think they don't need certain things or if they think they need to save more, Ultimately, that puts pressure on prices, puts pressure on demand, and forces prices of everything to go down. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a cultural phenomenon that has uh, fairly far-reaching uh, economic consequences. I saw a report by the state of California that shocked me. And it said that it anticipated not just that the building trades or the building industry was in trouble in California – but that they expected the entertainment industry to suffer major blows here in California. And, of course, the reason I asked the question about psychology is that why would people suddenly change their entertainment habits in all this? And it, it occurs to me that that when people are faced with things that are more serious in life, they turn away from entertainment and diversion toward more serious connection with their life, with their families, with their businesses, whatever. Do you see a a cultural shift across the spectrum? Well, you make an interesting point because one of the industries that, and again, there is no such thing as a sort of recession or depression-proof industry, but one area where there was some strength during the 30s was the cinema, was the movies, the escapism. You know, people, the Marx Brothers uh, movies were, were very popular during the uh, the 30s. Um, so there was some search for escape from the sort of day-to-day routine. That being said, I think there's also another shift going on. I think people are going to move away from the superfluous, move away from the sort of superficial, consumer-led, advertising-propagated view of life looking for more meaning, more spiritual meaning, more of a sense of faith in things that they don't have to spend money on. And um, so I I think that's the sort of offset. But it's not an easy question to answer because I think you'll get both. I think you'll get some people looking to move away from the sort of um, silly entertainment that, you know, the Hollywood industry puts out on the one hand, 
but you also find some people looking for escape from, you know, the day-to-day dreariness of life. Yeah, and of course, entertainment today is laden with commercials. A lot of it is connected with selling of products. And of course, if people are changing their lifestyle, simplifying their lives, moving away from consumerism, then advertising is going to be less and less effective. I agree. I agree. And, um, you know, uh, initially, uh, it, well, it's kind of a curious effect. Initially, you find companies advertising more because they think they need to to make up for the business they're losing. But eventually, those budgets get cut because they realize that it's not having any effect. Plus, you've got the Internet, which whether you like it or not, or whether people like it or not, I mean, most people view as effectively free. And young people in particular seem to be migrating to um, Internet-type entertainment. So, you know, it could be a, a sort of a double whammy with uh, people scaling back, advertisers spending less money, and and a whole you know demographic group that feels like the internet is their primary you know source of entertainment anyway. Uh, to shift gears a second here, we have as a stimulus package one of the solutions that's being offered by our statesmen is for every taxpayer to get this lump sum. I think it's it's about six hundred per person, if I'm understanding it correctly. Is this going to delay the decline of the economy? Is it going to have any effect? And how can the fiscal system of the of the federal government withstand giving back that much money? Well, you make a good point. It can't. I mean, effectively, the money is going to be borrowed. So uh, you already have a um, you know a U.S. Uh, financial position um, which is precarious already. Um, it's only going to add to that. Whether we've reached a tipping point on that, uh, I don't know. Some people would argue the weakness in the dollar reflects a, a kind of a foreigner's view that the U.S. Has, has really just completely lost the plot. Um, but, you know, it's it's hard to say that it will have no effect because if you do, you know, just hand out money willy-nilly, uh, it's likely some of it will be spent. But the truth is they've done surveys of consumers and they've asked them what they're going to do when they get the money and I guess economists have estimated that they would spend like 40% or something, but the numbers look um, half of that or less. A lot of people are going to pay down credit card bills. They're going to put it into savings. They're going to do something that is not what is intended. So aside from the fact that $150 billion, although it's a lot of money, could have a, uh, you know, a Philip-type effect, um, the full amount of it probably won't be spent anyway, and it pales in comparison to, you know, some have argued that we've lost $2 trillion or something in housing wealth. I mean, $2 trillion versus $150 billion is, is you know, there's a substantial difference there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not that much. I, uh, I, I need to ask about unemployment. Uh, we got in January the, the news that unemployment suddenly for the first time since I think it's 2003 we had uh, – actual rise in unemployment fewer uh, jobs were lost instead of created you know in a in a net figuring and then all of a sudden february comes out no no we had job growth in the february statistics um do you think that unemployment's going to kick in heavily this year or we're going to wait for that or or is it is it happening and it's only hidden i think um all three of those things i think it's happening and it's hidden um, one big change in the employment statistic, and I don't remember exactly when it took place, but um, they essentially started eliminating from the final tallies people who had been long-term unemployed, essentially discouraged workers. Mm-hmm. And some have estimated that if you include those workers, the people who really do want to find a job but basically have had no luck for an extended period of time, that you're talking that our effective uh, unemployment rate in the U.S. is more like 12% rather than 5%. Really? Uh, yeah. 
Um, you know, you go to uh, a statistic, I think, shadowstatistics.com, I believe. John Williams, I think he may have that data. But, um, you know, there's these millions of people that have just been dropped from the data, dropped from the statistics, because they're not considered to be, quote, um, as actively looking as other people who have been uh, unemployed for a, small, a shorter period of time. So yeah. that's the first point. The second point is is that I think some companies found back in previous recessions that if they cut too soon, that they were scrambling for workers because those recessions proved to be relatively mild. So I think they've been conditioned, like a lot of stock market people, like a lot of economists and politicians, to think this time around, the same old story. And I think that they're going to suddenly start playing catch up with that. The other point is that typically employment in all cycles tends to lag. Uh, unemployment tends to lag. It's a lagging indicator because companies will do what they can to avoid having to cut, you know, a great number of their staff because it costs money to hire and train them to begin with. So mm-hmm. um, you have this combination of bad data, people believing that, you know, like they drunk the, the sort of Goldilocks Kool-Aid and the fact that, you know, historically, unemployment has been a lagging indicator all coming together. And I think that over the next course of the next year or two, uh, you're going to see it rise dramatically, the official tallies. The official tallies. I had uh, a guest on uh, a month or two ago who made the prediction. He thought that, that in seven months, the economy was going to get very bad. And uh, he made a rather dire prediction in that regard. Do you think this thing continues to unfold in a sort of gradualistic way or is there going to be a a moment when everybody looks at each other and says it's happened we're 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 in a great depression we're we're in trouble well you know it's in a way it's it's all sort of surreal because even though for example i know i pay attention to it and i'm sure uh you and a lot of your listeners do read the press and hear about things that are blowing up in different financial markets day after day, you walk outside and it seems like life goes on. So there's always like a sort of a kind of a surrealness to all this anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I laid out a scenario in my book, I, I basically had it a, as a process. And I had a period of malaise, which I think we've been through, a systemic crisis, which I think if we're not in now, we're certainly heading into and that the the next stage would be depression. And I, the crisis essentially is the slap in the face that says, you know what, this is no longer garden variety. This is the real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, perhaps Bear Stearns is the beginning of that. I'm not totally sure. But I think that was the button that gets pushed that turns psychology from sort of, well, you know, it's it's not so good right now to, well, things are going to get a whole lot worse. Hmm. And and do you think we're there yet, or we're almost there? I think we're close. We're very close. I think once we see failures literally splash on the front page of the newspapers, which uh, I expect to see, by the way, many of them, we haven't quite had them. We're close. But once we see that, once people see recognizable names gone bankrupt, you know, belly up, close their doors, that will change the psychology dramatically. And I think we're very close to that point. Hmm. Uh, with me is my guest, Michael Pansner, author of Financial Armageddon, Protecting Your Future from Four Impending Catastrophes. I am Jeff Nyquist, and we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. 
On air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 WIBG. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning. Now in life, you're allowed to support whoever you want, but in partisan politics, there are rules. To Roseman Afternoons. Someone suspects they're an illegal immigrant. The cop is more afraid of arresting them than of letting them go. Chuck Betson Sports Saturdays. That's how you're battling it. Yes, I like that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I think that's more than reasonable. I certainly, you know, we're talking about 12 million dollars here. I don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. This is Jeff Nyquist, and with me is my guest, Michael Pansner, author of Financial Armageddon. And we've been talking about the unfolding crisis, undoubtedly a crisis in the U.S. financial system. And uh, it's affecting Europe, too, isn't it, uh, Michael? We, there, there's been stories about Britain and Germany and France. Are they, in some sense, worse off than we are? Um, I think it's definitely country by country. But I think the most interesting thing here and the one you need to, to sort of keep in mind and the one that made me believe that we could see the sort of crisis unfold that we are seeing is that the whole global financial system had become very, very tightly integrated. And you had concentration of uh, resources, concentration of you know, connection points in a sm- relatively small number of entities, you know, these big global financial firms, for example, and these big global um, hedge funds. So you've got all this connectivity going on, um, much more dense, dense connectivity than you've had before because of financial innovation and technology. But at the same time, you've had a, a, a smaller number of entities, financial institutions, banks, serving as counterparties to a broad universe of, you know, of the financial uh, interests around the world. So you get one of those breaking down, and it seems to reverberate through the whole system, uh, unlike in the past. So I think what's happening here in the U.S. will certainly have repercussions in every other country around the world. Other countries do, however, have different economic circumstances in the U.S. They don't have the same budgetary issues that the U.S. has. They haven't been living on the, um, or at least some of them haven't been living uh, on the kindness of foreigners uh, borrowing, you know, heavily from China and Japan just to, to, to sustain their, their, their sort of um, unsustainable standards of living. So there are going to be countries that come out of this uh, better off, but I think everyone's going to be affected. An interesting uh, thing, we've seen the rise of this huge um, reserves of of the Russian Federation. They've they've got huge uh, cash reserves, gold reserves, financial reserves. Uh, China has large ones, and you have this the rise of these uh, sovereign funds and uh, states coming in and and actually buying up properties or becoming investors in things. Could it be that some of these countries that are financially prepared or seem to know that this is happening uh, can emerge with a a financial position that would have been unthinkable for those countries previously? Well, I think in a, in a, a sense you're asking the question, are they using their wealth as an economic uh, weapon, whether overt or, you know, sort of uh, behind the scenes? And I, yes, I do think so in some cases. Clearly, there are some aspects to this that are investment related, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it go, we're down to politics, geopolitics, and mm. um, you know a, a potential shifting world order. And I think uh, the countries that have these resources know that. It's interesting that that of course Russia and China have been uh, 
weak compared to the United States. They're considered great countries and great powers, but compared to the U.S., their financial power and their uh, military power has not been as great. And right now you have Russia's making a lot of money because oil has been this past week around $110 a barrel and 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 China, of course, has been exporting to the United States uh, uh, all these consumer goods. With the global recession, these windfalls to these countries are going to go away. I mean, uh, once you get into a global recession, energy prices are going to fall, aren't they? And then Russia's revenues are going to fall. And so Russia's going to have to do something else to make ends meet. And the same thing for China. I mean, it's catastrophic. If this thing hits the United States, how is China going to keep its its large workforce employed? Well, you make a good point. And, and some cynics, you know, some pessimists, not cynics, uh, some pessimists would argue that um, if those economic pressures become great enough, there's a number of alternatives, and one of them is to start a war with somebody, mm-hmm. you know, to create to create demand, essentially. Another possibility is that, um, you know, for example, Russia's already been making a number of attempts to sort of lock down resources in various parts of the world. They even made a, uh, a grab in the uh, in the Arctic Ocean, or they're attempting to, to uh, try mm-hmm. and grab uh, resources at the, uh, the bottom of the uh, Arctic Ocean. So I think you could find all sorts of aggressive behavior as an attempt perhaps to appease social unrest and also to uh, to keep the money flowing in. Now, this is a question you may not be able to answer, but it, it's on my mind, and perhaps we could speculate a little bit about it. With this situation unfolding, uh, you know, and, and the U.S. right now, the, the government's trying to give money back to the taxpayers, but I have in front of me... Uh, uh, something from uh, a congressman about the 2009 budget resolution, the fiscal year 2009. Uh, it's going to be the largest tax increase in history. Now, uh, is the United States government going to be able to maintain its revenue flow? And what's going to get cut in that? Is, is the military going to get cut? Are social services going to get cut? And you, you write about in your book that inevitably in this kind of thing, social services are going to get cut. And right now we have a crisis because a lot of our services are coming from state and local government, and they're in a position where they're completely dependent. A lot of cities are facing bankruptcy. A lot of states like California, huge cutbacks. I mean, they just laid off uh, thousands and thousands of teachers in California. Uh, they have a 10% uh, budget cut in many departments of the state government. Is this just the beginning of this sort of thing, or are they going to be able to maintain their revenues? Um, I think it's just the beginning. I mean, look, there's only two things they can do. They can either cut in some form, cut expenses, cut some aspect of, uh, of what they're doing right now, or they can try and jack up taxes. And, and I think initially they're, they're probably going to try and lean in that direction. But, you know, you're going to get people who are suffering um, because of the state of the economy uh, taxpayer revolts, and uh, and I predicted uh, in the, in the book actually that you know the first stage would be government, state governments, and local governments in particular trying to jack up rates to compensate. But the next stage is going to be people saying, you know what, we're not paying this because we don't make any money. We're 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 suffering. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there'll be a you know a widespread taxpayer revolt. So you know you're going to find these 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 municipalities and and at the federal level um, getting squeezed. Um, I think one result. Um, unless we move to a complete state of martial law and uh, the military takes over, which I wouldn't completely rule out. Um, but one result has to be uh, a reduction in our uh, in our military uh, spending, um, mm-hmm. both in terms of our presence overseas, the war in Iraq and, our, and Afghanistan, and, uh, and really uh, in terms of this whole sort of 
military industrial complex. So I think that's coming and, and that will only actually worsen the U.S.'s standing in the world stage and will probably make things worse, you know, have a compounding effect on the dollar as well when people realize the U.S. is no longer uh, uh, what it was. Now, is there a good side to the dollar going down in value? I mean, does that mean that we can start manufacturing here and exporting overseas, or is that just structurally out of the question? Well, it does help, and and certainly certain industries in the U.S. have benefited. Um, even the farmers have benefited because they're obviously exporting. You know, it's the breadbasket of the world in terms of certain uh, commodities like wheat and corn. So yes, it does help because it makes our prices cheaper. Um, but you know, there's a lot of people who get hurt by a weaker dollar, and and clearly the fact that we import most of our oil means that. For all those people who are benefiting from selling more goods overseas, there's a hell of a lot more people getting hurt because they have to pay higher prices for oil. Mm -hmm. Could we compare this to what was going on in 1980-81 when we had the, the most severe recession we had since the Great Depression and we had double-digit inflation and oil prices almost as high adjusted for inflation as they are now, roughly speaking, and we had a, a crisis of confidence with the, with the government? If I compared it to that time and, and the fact that we got out of that, what would you see that's different from what happened in around 1980 to, to today? Well, I think, first of all, the, the financial health of the U.S. government was, was better than it is now. The financial health of the U.S. consumer, or most Americans, was a lot better then than it was now. Uh, U.S. was in its ascendancy in terms of its place on the world stage, despite that hiccup. And in, in many respects, a lot of the problems that we have now weren't there. I mean, we had problems. We had serious problems. But I guess you could categorize it as a hidden reserve. And I think we've tapped that hidden reserve. Mm -hmm. And our indebtedness. Do you have any figures on the top of your head about how indebted Americans in general are, how indebted state and local and federal government is, what the level of debt we're talking about? You know, the best data point I have, and, and, and I'll qualify why this is even this is a kind of an understatement, but the best data point I have is that total debt in the U.S., which includes public and private debt, you know, government debt as well as personal debt, corporate debt, et cetera, is something on the order of 340% of GDP, which is, you know, the nation's output of goods and services, really are, you know, what we produce. The last time we saw anything even remotely close to those numbers was uh, during the um, early years of the Great Depression when it hit something on the order of 280%. So you've had this one particular data point which shows you that the, the scale of exposure we have in terms of debt is as extreme as it's ever been. But that doesn't take into account, for example, the um, estimates of anywhere from sort of 60 to $80 trillion of uh, Medicare and, and, uh, and Social Security-related benefits that we've promised that uh, we haven't made allowances for. It doesn't take account of a trillion to a trillion and a half worth of state and local government retirement-related obligations that haven't been accounted for. It doesn't take account of the fact that a healthy chunk, perhaps the majority of Americans, don't have money set aside for uh, their own uh, retirement or in terms of the, the savings rate that Americans have. I mean, although we've gone into the plus recently, we're far below historic norms in terms of how much money people save. If you put it all together, that dire sounding number is an understatement. And I think that's the thing you have to keep in mind. This is what you do in your book. You line all these things up 
and you show in your book how many of these factors, they're all undeniable. These are facts, our indebtedness, the, the, the structure of our financial system, the problems with hedge funds and retirements, and the most definite credit inflation leading to this crash, and we're seeing it play out. It seems to me, as my background's in political science, that this is the stuff of social revolution. This is the stuff of political revolution. You mentioned uh, martial law. There was a report by Congress that came out uh, recently showing that the National Guard, because of its use in Iraq, is not prepared for a martial law situation. And it, it is fascinating to me the degree to which we are not ready for the kind of problems that you're describing uh, coming at us now, that we're not psychologically prepared, we're not, our government is not uh, prepared in terms of security, and uh, our cities aren't prepared, and we ourselves, with our extended debts and our credit cards and our lifestyle, are not prepared. Do you see, in the not-too-distant future, do you see a new kind of political movement or leadership possibly coming out of these events? Because we've seen this before in other countries. Well, I think that's inevitable. The question is whether it's a benign leadership or whether it's, you know, the complete opposite. And, uh, you know, that's a yeah. sort of $64,000 question. I think somebody made the comparison, and, and I don't remember who it was, unfortunately, but talked about the fallout from the depression, the crisis that took place then, and argued you had two mm -hmm. very powerful leaders emerge from that. You had, you know, FDR here in the U.S., and you had Hitler emerge in Germany. You know, the kind of good, mm -hmm. good and bad... Um, response to the same, arguably the same development. I mean, you know, there's, there's lots of nuance in there, but I, I think it's an interesting way of phrasing. I think you, those kinds of uh, circumstances, well, I don't know if it's strictly a matter of luck or the matter of, you know, matter of the draw or whatever, but I think it's likely we get that kind of a change. The question is, do we get the kind of change that people want or do we get the kind of change that creates, you know, a disaster in its own right? Yeah, I, I notice with, with, if you study Hitler, it's interesting. You had the rise of this uh, political rhetoric of resentment where you started the rhetoric of the Nazis was against the Jews, of course, but they were also against the bankers and the capitalists. They were against liberals. And, and what that meant in the European sense is people who believe in freedom and they believe in the market, sure. uh, the free market. And um, I see in this country very sinister development in recent years conspiracy thinking on the part of both the right and the left you're seeing on the internet and you're seeing in certain alternative media a drumbeat of hate against the u.s government and against the leading financial figures in our country and if i had to go by that i would say we're headed for somebody bad very you know very possibly i mean i think part of that is scapegoatism you know people are looking for someone to blame and that happens after every crisis and it doesn't necessarily lead to um, a political disaster after that mm -hmm. so it's a common occurrence but i agree with you i think there's a re real risk that it could throw up somebody who is the antithesis of what we've come to believe is what america is all about yeah we have traditions we got abraham lincoln we've got traditions of very decent people being in, in, in political leadership in this country, at least uh, it's necessary for people to project uh, decency to get elected. Uh, we don't have anybody who talks like Hitler up there running. Uh, we haven't seen that in, in American politics, thank goodness. But, but yet there's this grumbling from below. Looking at the presidential candidates, is there anybody you see now, we're, we're narrowed, narrowing the field down, who's talked realistically about the economy and the economic problems that you've seen? Uh, no, 
because I think nobody wants to talk about it because then it opens up the uh, the next question of what are you going to do about it? Uh, and I don't think they have any answers. So, yeah, I, I think that is the, the sort of elephant in the room, the economy. I mean, they, they, they can't not acknowledge it, mm-hmm. but there is no real um, hard discussion except to, to, as, a, as a blame game. I mean, the, you know, the Democrats are happy to say, you know, we've got the Bush economy and uh, – you know, we've got the, the sort of Republicans arguing that, um, you know, the economy, economic conditions are bad because, uh, you know, fears of the Democrats. I mean, it's, you know, it's rhetoric, not not any real uh, substance. Mm-hmm. And the information that the public has about the economy is mixed. As you pointed out, the statistics aren't necessarily reliable. We could have double digit unemployment and not know it. Well, not only that. I mean, the same thing with inflation. I mean, they they did a number of adjustments. Actually, I think it was during the Clinton era, but a um, number of adjustments. And again, this shadow statistics um, site uses the old methodology and, and reckons that the uh, CPI, if it were done on that basis, would be more like eight eight and a half percent, which I think is much more consistent with people's uh, what they're seeing on a day to day basis when they go to the grocery store and, and whatnot. I mean, I think it's laughable that government reported inflation data there's no way it has any correlation to reality based on what i see just in my you know day-to-day spending habits i, I was reading recently that gold bullion is the thing to have <laughs> well i mean i mean look there's a lot of gold bulls i mean you know it bothers me a little bit this whole commodity boom here because i really do believe that there's an element of blow-off to this that i think it's the last hurrah of the of the era of leveraged speculation. I think everybody who lost money in real estate, stocks, etc., has decided they're going to make their fortune in commodities. So I'm a little wary. But, you know, clearly there are people who believe, and I think history is on their side, uh, that all fiat currencies, all paper currencies, including the dollar, eventually go to zero. And the one true test of time, if you want to, you know, preserve wealth, has been, uh, you know, precious metals, particularly gold. But, you know, my view is that it's not that straightforward. Um, and although mm-hmm. I'm 10 year out, I'm a bull on gold. In the short run, it seems all a little overdone. So you think gold in the near future, you said 10 years out, in the next 10 years, gold is going to do well? Yeah, it's going to go up a lot, in my opinion. Wow. Because I think people will realize that it's not just the dollar that's a problem. I think they're going to realize that most paper currencies, whether you're talking about the yen, the pound, the euro, I mean, for all practical purposes, they're ultimately all headed towards zero, maybe at different rates. But, you know, the governments have this great propensity to uh, produce more money than is viable because they just don't know how to control their spending. That is that is interesting. And and we've touched on so many uh, good points that we could go back on. You were talking about um, countries becoming more aggressive in this environment and so on. Um, particularly countries that maybe lost their markets, need to keep their economies going, or they're going to have social unrest. And, and given the structure of the U.S. economy, we can be pretty safe in saying we're going to move towards a more isolationist position. Uh, uh, the United States isn't going to strike out and attack more countries. It's going to pull in, don't you think? I agree, but that's going to leave everyone kind of free to roam and do their own thing. I think that's the, yes, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, we're going to go back to the kind of environment, global environment, that we had before uh, World War II, where uh, dictators could start overrunning neighbors and building their own empires on military aggression, and without uh, a major power like the U.S. to kind of guarantee the security of smaller countries, 
you know, it's it's basically a, a kind of global anarchy. The whole sort of uh, peace, the Pax Americana that we've had the last uh, 60 years is over. I agree. And in fact, it's one of the themes of my next book. I really genuinely believe we're going to move back to a, uh, a much darker, much more violent uh, multipolar world where fading U.S. influence essentially opens up this whole Pandora's box of people striking out that uh, we haven't seen for decades. Yeah, it's it's an amazing period of stability people don't realize since World War II. And, and when when we saw the dictators, we had Japan in Asia, we had Germany in, in Europe, we had Italy in Africa expanding and, and committing these wars. Now we have much larger countries. We have weapons of mass destruction, you know, countries like China and Russia with hundreds of millions of population instead of tens of millions of population uh, ready, it seems, to engage in similar behavior and and rising militarism. What is the title of your new book? Do you have a working title for it? Um, no, we're debating it because um, they didn't like my original um, title. So it's not quite been fixed yet, but it's due out in the sort of early part of 2009. Wow. Well, I look forward to seeing that book. Originally, the title actually was called Splintered States. You know, it was kind of a play on the fact that the world was going to splinter and there would be many different levels of splintering going on. But um, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't like that title. But it will be along those lines. I have somewhat of an economic orientation, but it will be, you know, broadly based social as well as other uh, issues. So. And, of course, I've been watching China and Russia for a long time. And I just relate uh, a headline there was a recent, when this congressional study came out showing that uh, the U.S. Uh, National Guard was not ready and not properly trained, there was the Pravda headline was, um, U.S. defenseless in the event of, you know, invasion or uh, attack from Russia and China, was basically, which is incredible. Uh, when the Soviet military was collapsing and being dismembered, you didn't see the New York Times or any American paper saying, uh, uh, Russian military collapsing, Russia now defenseless against invasion from the United States. You wouldn't see that headline going the other way, which kind of shows the difference in mentality from over there versus over here. Well, you've made that, I think you've made that point in, in some of your writings, and I, and I really feel it's a very unappreciated aspect of life. And I think particularly uh, in America, but even in, in many Western European countries, how mindsets how different mindsets are in mm -hmm. uh in certain parts of the world we had the the interesting event in ecuador where the colombian government did an airstrike and killed mr reyes the number two man in the farc and they recovered computers showing a communist block actually exists in latin america it consists of nicaragua uh, uh ecuador uh, venezuela and bolivia at the very least committed to the death in some of these uh, notes between these leaders to oppose the United States and to bring about a revolution, communist revolution in Colombia. With our own backyard and Venezuela's oil being so important, do you see that the United States is, is basically going to be in a, in a security situation in its own hemisphere? Well, I think that's very conceivable. Um, although I, I, on the other side of that equation, I mean, there are some who argue that we're going to see one day uh, sort of geographical regional blocks and where Canada and, the, and uh, Mexico are, are part of a, a fairly tight uh, regional entity. But, yeah, I do believe it's an issue. I mean, you know, I, I have to say, and this is kind of a cynical perspective, Latin Americans have never been very good at organizing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the world evolves, and, um, you know, you've got uh, 
Brazil, for example, seems to have a, a, a much more uh, self-assured. Uh, a, it's a different kind of country than it used to be, and it's conceivable that you could find all sorts of uh, mature strains in Latin America that uh, could allow for that to happen. And, of course, you have the argument that America, you just made an interesting sociological argument about different cultures or, or not being able to organize in quite the same way that perhaps Europeans have organized or America has organized. Do you see America as potentially through, if this thing hits the whole globe, as the country that's that's going to emerge eventually better than other countries out of this? Well, it's hard to say, but I, I personally don't believe so. I think, um, you know, maybe I'm just a, a, a sort of student of history here, but um, I think we're looking at the sort of waning days of the American empire, and like most past empires, the the best days are never repeated, and I think that's the, the case here. So I, I would have to say no on the basis of that alone. Um, I, I also think there'll be um, all sorts of interesting pressures um, taking place in the uh, in the U.S. Secessionist type pressures, for example. Mm -hmm. um, different parts of the country will be looking to sort of um, break away. Um, I'm not saying that America is is going to be completely helpless and and lose all its strength, but I don't think it's going to be the America that people have known. So it is possible that the United States may be more than one country after a few years? I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. And I think there are certain, um, you know, there are already those kinds of pressures and certain, you know, obviously they're mm. fringe somewhat now. But yeah. I, I I think they'll be stoked in an environment where people feel that, you know, they're suffering for the sins of the fathers, um, you know, if you want to use that kind of analogy. Hmm. Those are very serious concerns. Uh, Michael J. Pansner, I want to thank you for being on the show and I urge everybody to go out and buy your book, Financial Armageddon, because it, it's very well written. It has tremendous information in it, and it's serious stuff. We're seeing this stuff happen. Thank you very much. Did you have any closing remarks? You, uh, I think you made the, the case uh, again and again, but I, I think the thing that people want to remember is that it is happening, um, and when people are telling you that it, everything's okay, they're not telling you the truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. At 1020 AM or WIBG.com, we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. It's very interesting what's happening in the world today. We're seeing things happen after a period of prosperity and peace for the United States that, that we haven't seen since the 40s and the 30s. We're seeing uh, the beginnings of what would be a great financial contraction, a great depression. We're seeing countries like China and Russia emerging more belligerent, more obviously uh, aiming at the United States as their enemy. And and we know what will happen if the United States economy falls. The U.S. military will not be funded to the same level. The U.S. will have to retreat. And the dictatorships, the totalitarian countries, will once again be on the move. The period of peace and prosperity will be at an end and will be in the kind of world we were in once upon a time. 
I think that as Americans we need to reflect on the blessing of our country and hope that we can keep our country and keep our country safe in the future. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope you'll join me on this program the same time next week. Until then, be well. You've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.